Well, here we go. Episode 70 of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Wow, I'm really happy this is going live, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you a little backstory before you hear the conversation with Meredith and I. Meredith Fogley-Bros joins me today on the show. So, and the only reason I'm just so happy that this is finally going live is because there was some technical difficulties, actually for the first time um, ever for my show. And this is actually the second time I'm recording the intro, so I'll get to that in a second. But, you know, when the podcast originated, I sort of had this idea of keeping it as raw as possible. I didn't think about editing it. I just, if it was two hours, two and a half hours, if people said, uh, all the time or like, or got nervous, or if, you know, I asked a question and it sort of went all over the place, I was all about just maintaining the conversation no matter what happened. And then I realized that was completely insane um, because, you know, I'm not Joe Rogan interviewing Kevin Hart. And, you know, Kevin Hart was just on the Joe Rogan show for three hours. And, you know, even I thought he was boring after a little while. I mean, there's, there's rarely any guest that can sustain anybody's attention for three hours. It's possible that nobody actually can. And even when he had Elon Musk on the show, I actually found it to be pretty boring. So about maybe five months ago, I was listening to Mark Marin on his podcast celebrating his 1000th episode. And he has his producer on and they're talking about uh, a lot of the behind the scenes work that is involved in the show. And the producer was very honest with, boy, some of these episodes I really edit for a long time and it takes time because, you know, somebody may come over for a couple hours and it's really not until 30, 40 minutes into the show where the guest feels comfortable. And so he doesn't want to subject the listener to 30 minutes of boring banter. You know, they cut it up and chop it up. And Fiona Apple apparently was just sort of all over the place and she thanked the producer profusely for editing it and making her sound reasonable on the show. So my point is here is that, you know, I was editing today's show and it wasn't really anything more arduous than any previous shows. Just it takes time. I think people don't realize the time involved with creative pursuit sometimes. And this podcast is definitely time-consuming. I'm, I take it very seriously. I want it to sound good. I mean, there's a reason why the podcast sounds good. I put a lot of time into it. I pay attention to the sound. I pay attention to the music. I'm not just throwing random music in wherever. I'm putting it in where I think it will fit for the flow of the show. I want the conversation to have a flow to it. So I'm saying all this because I recorded the episode in two parts. I typically like to record them in two parts because I want to save the first maybe 45, 50 minutes before going on, just because God forbid something just doesn't save. I don't want to lose everything. So I edit the first part. I edit the second part. You know, it's taking some time over a few hours. I mean, it's probably close to like two and a half. 
And I go to upload it to my computer to then get it on the cloud and then get it up to my podcast server. And I go to the first section and everything that I saved was gone. All the edits, everything was completely gone. So I needed to redo it all, which kind of drove me insane. But I think, ironically, when you have a yoga teacher on, you're not supposed to overreact. You're supposed to stay calm and centered. And I was certainly challenged. My patience was challenged. And then when I went to teach a yoga class today, normally it takes about 15, 20 minutes to get to the studio. But traffic was so bad that it took an hour to get there. So let me just say my patience was certainly challenged today. And then I go to record this intro, and for the first time ever, it wasn't recording, although it said it was recording on my iPad. So I don't know what's going on today, but anyway, I was clearly challenged. I'm thrilled that the podcast is finally live. I'm thrilled Meredith Fogg Libros has joined me on the show, and I, I think a lot about timing. I had Tamal on last week. And Meredith used to teach at Tamal Studio Yoga Salt. So, you know, I reach out to guests, and there really isn't necessarily a rhyme or a reason in the sense of the timing of when I reach out to them. That's not true. Actually, something could inspire me to reach out to them. But I don't know when they're going to say they can. There's always a lot of scheduling conflicts. So, you know, it just so happened that Meredith... And Tamal just sort of lined up back to back, which is fantastic because I think there are some similarities, at least philosophically speaking, and sort of their appreciation and value towards the practice of yoga, where I felt like, boy, it's really kind of cool that it lined up that the two of them are on the show back to back. So I met Meredith maybe five, six years ago at a video shoot for some Udaya online yoga classes. And I was instantly struck by just her sense of humor, her laid-back attitude, but I also could tell that she really valued and held dear the practice of yoga. I just had the sense that it was a very important part of her life. And so time sort of went by, but once I sort of began my teaching career and sort of began to navigate that... I thought she would be somebody that could be help, uh, helpful for me and maybe give me some advice. So I reached out to her probably a couple of years ago, and she was really helpful in giving me suggestions, advice. And I came to find out that she's got probably over like seven, eight hundred, maybe even a thousand hours of teacher training, and she's taught with um, Annie Carpenter, or she has practiced with Annie Carpenter. Mati from Yoga Works. I mean, some of the best, quote unquote, even, I mean, whatever that even means, but quote unquote, some of the best yoga teachers in the world. And so I always felt that she would be somebody that would give me good advice, which she did. So, you know, fast forward to about three months ago, and I'm on Instagram, my favorite thing in the world. And she, I'm joking, of course. And she posts these photos in this video where she's doing these pretty amazing yoga postures. And it just so happens that it's going to, that it's being performed or she's doing these postures on the day that she's going to be giving birth. 
And she knows that she's going to be giving birth because she has a planned cesarean. So I was just really awestruck by not just really the postures that she was doing, but the words that she said. And there was an intimacy and a a depth and a clear, strong connection to the practice and how dear she holds it. And I felt, I instantly, I feel like texted her or messaged, messaged her maybe like a couple hours later, maybe that night, telling her how amazing the post was. And I felt like she would be a fantastic guest. I think Instagram and social media, we are losing sight of valuing depth and we're forgetting sort of the intimate connections that people have with certain practices. And in Meredith's case, yoga, I think because a lot of the yoga apparel companies, because of just the nature of our culture, the superficiality, the narcissism, it's turning valuable practices like yoga and turning it into sort of a spectacle. And the reality is, is that whether it's yoga, meditation, there is an intimacy to the practice. And it's, I think, often getting lost. So I felt after reading Meredith's posts that it would be pretty awesome to be able to sit down and talk to her and hear her story and hear why she values yoga so much. We obviously talk about yoga. We talk about Mati. We talk about how she got into yoga. And I also felt being a mother of two young children in sort of this technology invasion that's happening in our culture, I wanted to hear from her, being a yoga teacher, how she's navigating tech and sort of the lessons she's trying to teach her kids. And I just finished watching the show Euphoria on HBO, which I sort of feel, I feel as though it sort of symbolizes this chaotic duality that we have sort of created in this world where people are living two lives. They have their real life and they have the life that they're curating on Instagram. And it feels as though people are paying more attention to their Instagram life than their real life. So I think that sort of creates this emotional chaos, this emotional duality, this sort of dystopian society that we're living in. I think it's already hard enough to manage one life while people are trying to manage two. And instead of paying attention to the real life, they're preferring to spend more time in the Instagram fake world. So I wanted to talk to Meredith about all of this. And I am just so thankful that she took the time to share her story, to share some of the personal struggles that she has with yoga and the direction it's sort of gone possibly because of Instagram and technology. And yeah, so she can be found on Instagram at Meredith Fogg Libros. She's not currently teaching right now, but I got the sense after speaking with her that she's going to be back in the studio teaching again soon. And yeah, so it's a really fantastic, intimate, personal conversation. I'm so glad it's actually here that you're going to be able to listen to it. There's no more technical difficulties. So yeah, so that's the intro. If you dig the show, please 
head on over to iTunes, write a review, share the show with friends. I'm getting tons of new listeners across the world because my podcast host has been featuring me over the last few weeks. So please share the podcast with friends. Send me a DM on Instagram. And you can always support the show by visiting my Patreon at patreon.com backslash Eddie Cohn. But yeah, that's it. So again, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Meredith. I hope you continue to support and listen to the show. I really appreciate your support. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen and be a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. what people like and do and how they behave on a social media platform, people think that's how you really are. Or they take that as though it's very serious or... Well, it's become a social currency. Yeah. And that's the currency. That's the thing with which we now exchange and like intentionally expose ourselves and evaluate ourselves and others it's become currency yeah i like that i mean i don't i like that term i like how you're referring to it as because i compare social media to money because we all have a relationship with money it's all very personal and we all think of money in a very different way and i think social media as you say does feel like currency it literally serves a, a function now in that it is transactional you can convert your social media exposure to money right or opportunity yeah uh i mean that's a thing now (laughs) yeah no it's a real thing so it it, maybe it's not a metaphor to call it currency maybe it literally is yeah currency i mean it is certainly in the yoga world yeah Um, i'd love to say for better or for worse but clearly for worse (laughs) yeah i mean well it feels like we're just going to dive right in. I mean, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, no, we could no. It, I, and, well, this is. A- I have very nuanced opinions that are not. You know, I, it's not. A, it's something that I'm opposed to writ large. Yeah. Well, I'm not. This is. Well, I think you're actually very similar to how, how I feel when when I complain or make a comment about social media, and I may target yoga because I teach yoga. People think that I. I'm just trying to stir the pot or create controversy. And I think it's naive to think that if the vast majority of a population is staring more at their phone than actually having real intimate conversations, if the vast majority of the most popular yoga teachers are posting the most physical acrobatic postures they could possibly dream of capturing in a minute of a second and then throw it on a social media platform. It's naive to think that that doesn't tri- trickle down and impact a culture, at least in my opinion. And I think it's not just happening in yoga. I think it's just we've become a culture now that is obsessed with the physical looking pretty. And I think the irony for me is, is that when I think of yoga, it really should be the opposite. And it just felt as though what I was seeing, it was just lumping itself up with everything else that was happening in our culture. Yeah. The juxtaposition of a yoga teacher and a 
social media influencer is it is sort of a microcosm of you could express it as a problem it is a, a an example of the of the way that people now live and perceive themselves in the world the problem i want to be fairly value neutral yeah uh and i tend to see these things as systems and i tend not to blame the individuals that for sheer talent and good instincts have managed to leverage platforms for good as well as for you know maybe a little more just self-serving purposes but a social media platform that exists to put forth an image of a of a a persona or a marketer it is anathema to what our predecessors as yoga teachers would have seen as yoga I'm a words person, so it kind of becomes a semantical argument for me, um, which you know gets a little bit in the weeds. But you could take it out of the social media sphere altogether, and I know that's um, you know a topic that you that's something you're kind of working through, and I work through it too. But I, my issues go like a layer or two deeper, and that the the way that yogis and yoga teachers use social media now is a, it's a very natural progression of where the yoga world has been trending. Hmm. And I think that that you have to back it up and recognize that at a certain point when yoga became an industry and a business and it became conflated with fitness and wellness, when it made all the sense in the world that it would be this really fertile ground for marketing. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's sort of where I trace back the crossroads of, of and, and I look at the people that are um, influencing the yoga space on social media and you have people that are doing it in ways that are extremely positive um and then and then you have people who frankly are incredibly skilled marketers and have incredible talents and they're essentially operating as freelance marketing executives they're just not being paid for it i say that to make the distinction in in that i don't i don't actually think there's anything wrong with what people are are doing out there when they are cultivating followers, engaging and landing their contracts and having their fiduciary obligations. But these people are doing the work of, of brands. Of uh, I, I worked in advertising and I was a media consultant and I worked in politics and I have all of these things in my background and I see the ways in which it's, it's a little exploitative mm-hmm. uh, that you're having these individuals like sell your products essentially and they're not benefiting from it in terms of their own you know, career trajectories. And yes, they're being paid, but not what they would be being paid if you were paying them as though they were part of your, you know, in-house marketing teams or providing them with benefits and all of these things. So I I look at that as like, these people are actually, they've figured out how to use a technology and a platform in a way that's very artful, very effective, very persuasive. It, to me, just seems like it has nothing to do with my yoga practice. It has nothing to do with what I teach in a classroom. There's a lot of confusion there because the world now sees yoga as a fitness medium. Right. Um, which is fine. And again, it's a semantical distinction because fitness is a good thing. Uh, Definitely. <laughs> but I think, but then I start thinking, and I was talking to a friend of mine about Jerome in Santa Monica. I've never taken his class. Ah, he's great. But she te- keeps telling me I should take him. And she refers to him as a yoga teacher, mm-hmm. and she thinks a lot of the quote-unquote teachers are really merely just yoga 
instructors, very similarly similar to a fitness instructor. And I thought that was just an interesting point because, you know, you're right. It's fine that people are physically getting stronger and physically getting fit. And if yoga falls into that category, that's great. But if a teacher isn't talking about the breath or the mental side of the practice at all in the class, then maybe it really isn't a yoga class. It's really a fitness class. And the measure of that is actually simple, and it's in the word yoga. The concept of yoga or union or yoking is that we're here to dissolve our ego. Hmm. And if your experience of a classroom or a teacher or an instructor is not that, then whatever you're doing might have benefits, cardiovascular, uh, therapeutic, whatnot. They might, there might be many benefits. There might be moments in that experience that provided you some experience of yoga. But in general, I'm not seeing very much out there that is encouraging us to dissolve our sense of self. I, I'm rather seeing hmm. opportunities to, to, you know, these, they're very egoic experiences. Social media is proof. And I mean, that's right. That that's the proof right there is, is all about these extrinsic motivators for why you would have a yoga practice. It, it doesn't need to look any certain way or fit any sort of mold, hmm. but you know, when you see it, I don't see it very often, uh, in your kind of vinyasa culture. Not to say that it doesn't exist. Jerome's a great example. And, and I just and I just had Tamal on. Who um, he was here a couple of days ago, and it was sort of a reminder of. And I remember when I was thinking about taking a teacher training, and and I didn't want to go to Yoga Works just for my personal reasons. Um, and somebody suggested I go to Tamal, and I took his class. And I don't know. I, I'm. It's not that I'm. Maybe I am classical. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I did really respond and respect that there was a lot of different elements going on. And it, it clearly there's a physical element to his class. But I love that he devotes a good 15, 20 minutes to yin, restorative postures, and he even sings at the end. And he also always sort of tells these sort of philosophical stories reminding people sort of about what's really important because again I see I think it is a yoga teacher's job quote unquote maybe I'm wrong to remind people to what's what's really important because life is so fast I just had a couple friends one's my father's friend who is only in his early 60s and he had a heart attack and died 5 days ago and I see a culture that is more concerned about their image and themselves and it just sort of, when I had Tamal on, it made it reminded me of why I went to him. Because to me, he sort of symbolizes what I look for, or at least think of as a quote-unquote yoga teacher. And Tamal's managed to be one of the vinyasa flow teachers that has found through that medium a way to incorporate a philosophical interpretation of the taxa. And he, you know, this is something that he's lived for many, many years. And he's not, you know, he's not necessarily interested in, I don't want to speak for Tamal, but my experience of Tamal is that he is living what he's teaching. There's an authenticity to Tamal and Victoria. Yeah. 
the word authenticity is thrown around a lot. Sure. It's kind of lost its meaning a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know it when you see it. We can all judge for ourselves. My, my concern is that I don't think people know, they don't have the understanding of what's available to them to make these judgments necessarily. I know yoga teachers who, who aren't actually aware of anything beyond a power or yoga or power yoga or vinyasa yoga format. Right. They aren't aware of the history that goes into that, which is which is a very blended technology um, that is not old. Even though people want to talk about it like it is, it is not rooted in uh, the sutras. It's right. not. Again, you can have a yoga practice that doesn't involve a single pose. So it's not to say that there isn't every. Thing in every pose, you know, but historically these practices have been taught one-on-one mm. and we are now in a world where we evaluate a teacher based off of having quantity of students, which just diminishes your own ability to be taught. It's paradoxical in that if someone is really interested in, in a, this is a discipline, this is a study, this is not, doesn't need to be for everyone, but a, a yoga practice is not a hobby. You know, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, you get injured or in my case, pregnant or anything that changes your life circumstances. And then, ah, like, I can't do my yoga. If, if that's your relationship, it, it is a hobby. Hobbies are good. Yeah. And this is, again, where I get back to needing to be really clear in the semantics. I think the problem is really that we throw the word yoga where yoga, the word yoga doesn't belong. It just simply doesn't belong. And if you can remo- remove that, for me, I have less of a, of a hard time trying to be so evangelical in creating opportunities for my students to actually go deeper, to know more about traditions that offer them experiences beyond a yoga works classroom with 60 people and four fundamental postures and 15 minutes of inversions. Yeah. That is incredibly goal-oriented, that is incredibly egoic, that is you know, incredibly rooted in what you're wearing, who you are, what you look like, what you can do. Lots of love music. You know, you're a musician. For me, it doesn't have a place in, in a yoga class, uh, not because it's not wonderful, but because it is a, it is inherently a distraction. That's why we like music. It influences us. Huh. Distraction's a wrong word uh, because that's a little pejorative. It is an influence. There's a great book. Uh, are you familiar with Cal Newport? Of course. I just read his Digital Minimalism book. Yeah. yeah. Solitude. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about solitude. All right. So Cal Newport's book, Digital, Min- Digital Minimalism. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he talks about in the past 20 years how we've lost solitude. There's no experience of solitude in most people's life. Whereas you used to sit on a public bus in your ride home and just sit, you now are inundated with your music, your podcast, mm. your earbuds, your social media, right? That's the kind of like, that's the low hanging fruit, easy enough. But then we choose in our spare time to go to yoga classes where we are being influenced by a teacher's instructions. We are being influenced by the music that they're playing and the fun social atmosphere that we've placed ourselves in. Again, these are all good things. Yeah. They are we don't have a relationship with solitude anymore and I've shifted my practice to almost primarily an ashtanga practice uh, which is amazing because I have 2 hours a day of true solitude because it's 
it's a structured practice. You're not just doing whatever you want to do, but with the exception of one day a week, you're, you're in a quiet room with yourself. And until you have that experience and spend that time with yourself, you don't really get to understand the chatter. You're not really sitting with the, 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 the monkey mind, all these things that you hear, you're told about your, your, your chitta vrittis and your, you know, you, you go to these public classes and they're telling you that it's not about the poses and they're telling you that, you know, this is to still your monkey mind, but you're being inundated with influence the entire time and you walk out and then you are on your phone or you're at work or you're with your family Joyful, happy, wonderful things. Connection right. is great, but we don't have any solitude anymore. And so when I walk into a, a, a classroom and there's additional stimulus, now I also practice Iyengar yoga, which is lead. So I, I like the influence of a lead class. And I like it coupled with a self-practice. But that's my argument against music, is that it's just an additional influence. And it's another way to not just, sit, if you, you know, if you're in a bad mood and you turn on good music, you can shift your mood. That's a great yeah. thing. That's, uh, clearly, that's a positive thing. But it's also worth sitting in your bad mood. I think you're right. And I think one of the things that I challenge, I'm challenged with, and this goes beyond Instagram. I, and it's so funny that Instagram has sort of empowered this word influencer, which, and I just talked about this a few weeks ago on a podcast where, I mean, we're giving them too much credit because let's face it, we're being influenced, as you say, by everything, mm -hmm. by the people, our friends, the food we eat, the advertisements, obviously, the people we surround ourselves with. I mean, it, it's just, it's nonstop. And the, the to empower a quote-unquote influencer on Instagram, I mean, come on, let's face it, they're, they're, they're just like everything else out in the world. The point I want to make is, and I, don't, I think about this a lot, I often say it in yoga class, however, there is music playing in the background when I say it, so, but it's interesting because I think one of the things that I'm trying to bring to people's attention is, and Cal Newport talks about it, I mean, one of the, one of the only places I feel like we have now where we don't have a distraction is the shower, because you're, you obviously you can't bring your phone. And I mean, I guess you could. People have waterproof phones. But I think people don't really... I don't think people are thinking truly for themselves anymore. And that's a really powerful lesson. And it's hard to come to terms with. I think it was easier to think for yourself for yourself. 15 years ago, and that's pretty recent because really there was only three or four television channels. There was maybe your mom and your dad and family, maybe the local newspaper, your teacher, a couple friends. But if you have a thousand people that you're following on Instagram, if you have 2000 friends on Facebook, I mean, I believe that you are influenced by everything that they post subconsciously. And so in order to step away from that, it's just, it's a lot of work and it may be too far gone, but your point about, I mean, it sounds silly, but you're right. Me playing particular music in a class um, is manipulating the room to some regard. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for better or for worse, it's, it's. But 
I mean, even like a- again, back to it being a structural problem and not an individual problem. That's what they came for. You're doing your job. Sure. It's just that there's a there's a disconnect between the modern yoga experience and the discipline of yoga. Yeah. And the disconnect is in that many teachers, good teachers, young teachers, we're both young teachers, we haven't been given the opportunity to pursue this as hmm. a discipline because it's been introduced to us as a professional alternative, a, a yeah. lifestyle. Right. For many people, a performance-based career. You, know, you see a lot of people in LA that are choosing to teach yoga at the end of dance careers and acting careers. These people are well-suited to stand on a stage. They're very skilled. Uh, and they're very skilled at, you know, the gestalt method of dealing with totally <laughs> with groups of people. These are valuable skills. These are not these are not nefarious skills. You couple that with someone who has a, a, a extraordinarily profound practice and is skilled in learning how to translate that to individual students, and you get a mati. You get. You know, these are my teachers, Mati, Annie, Chuck. These, and, so, yeah. and then these people are passing down a lineage. But these people didn't choose to be yoga teachers. They dedicated their life to this practice, and an industry popped up around them. Right. They supplied, and that created a demand. There'll always be a demand. I mean, yoga is nature. Chuck says that all the time. It's in a moment where it's getting a little jumbled with a, um, a, a couple of other modalities but it's just a momentary confusion we will continue to be psychologically in need of these pursuits uh, and the physical precedes the contemplative for most of us i just want there to be more understanding for people who choose to become yoga teachers or just have a very serious yoga practice that they're just scratching the surface it's kind of off the beaten path to like remove yourself from the yoga works and the equinox and the there's not a lot of diversity when it comes to what we're actually being offered there are other cities i think new york actually has a lot more diversity in styles that are being offered and, and traditions and teachings la has been it's almost like too too successful of an industry and, yeah. and, and you know and then real estate holding companies have gotten involved and we are where we are um but i just i just really would encourage people to know what it is that they're teaching and the only way to do that is to be really dedicated to a personal practice that isn't about a choreograph and yasa flow practice. It could be. Right. But that, in most cases, is a good entree. It's a good introduction. i just not seeing people really being... And it, it, as a consequence of the profession being set up the way that it is and the business model of teacher trainings... These teachers, they need to make a living and they yeah. need to have students. So they need to not only get students in their rooms by creating an environment that is not confrontational, that is going to allow people to live in their egos and to you know bathe in their distractions because they will want to come, but then to keep them and not let them move on. And this isn't something that people are doing on purpose. This is something people are doing because this is their job. 
and they're being evaluated based off of their numbers. So very logically, you need to put people in a room and then once you get them there, you need to find a way to keep them. This is the business kind of having corrupted the, the teaching. It should be a situation where I gather what I gather from my teachers and then I share it. And then those people gather what they gather from me and then they share it. And they move to this person over here and this person over here. Or maybe it's not even a person, this book. You can learn yoga from a book. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned the shower, right? John mm-hmm. Kabat-Zinn has beginner's meditation. Is Here's your, the tip. Every day when you take a shower, just shower. <laughs> right. It won't cost you any time. <laughs> yeah. It's nothing you have to add into your life. But when you take a shower, just shower. It's profound. You have a moment where you're feeling the water and then all of a sudden you're hungry and you think about what you need for breakfast. You know, there's no succeeding at these exercises. But the mere attempt to try is this very confrontational experience of that you aren't in the driver's seat, frankly, ever, yeah. unless you're someone who's removed yourself from the influences that, you're, uh, that you were just, you know, just talking about. And yeah, I agree with you. I do think that this... This is harder. This is, this is getting harder for us, not easier for us. 15, 20 years ago, I think the idea of sitting still or taking a shower and being in the shower was more achievable for your average person with or without a yoga practice or a meditation practice. This is personal for me. I'm trying as hard as I can. I, my life is mostly dedicated, and my life outside of my family is, is mostly dedicated to these pursuits, and it's harder than shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Then again, that's why these things are not hobbies. There's a decent understanding out there that this is not all that this is about, right? People get that these postures are not the the whole of the practice. But I don't think it's enough to just say that. And mm. I don't think that we have leaders in our community. We ha- we have lots of wonderful, amazing leader teachers in our community. And here here's the difference. I think the leaders in our community are now being determined not by years of experience or experience in their own practice, but by their influence. Well, yeah, bingo. I mean, that's, yes, exactly. And then so our leaders, the air quotes are great on audio mediums. <laughs> our leaders are often younger people like, you know, like us, a lot younger than us oftentimes Definitely. that are, they're, they're figuring it out, but I don't know that, that, that they're, objective i mean they're 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 making their lives work they're living in expensive cities they they're paying their bills they're doing awesome you know they they figured out how to succeed in in a new landscape in a new media landscape like i think that's impressive i just i just have a hard time when it happens in the yoga world yeah me too i've seen a couple of people peers or friends or people that i've known that have been so successful in that, that I have really appreciated that they've kind of removed themselves from being yoga. Like they no longer, that's not what they're, that's not how they're defining themselves in the space. Right. They've expanded their brands for better or worse to being a public figure or writing books and doing all sorts of other things that, because they have something to say and nine times out of 10, it's positive and it should be said. 
um, but they've realized that they're not really teaching yoga. So they've kind of stepped back from that label, which I, which is exactly where I'm like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. Right. We're going to like, we're just going to realize that that you can be a good thing in the world and it doesn't have to have anything to do with yoga. I'm curious about a couple of things. Um, Let's just talk about Mati first. Is, mm-hmm. Do you pronounce it Mati or Mati? Mati. Mati. So let's talk about Mati first. And I, this may connect to my next question, but it's not that you have an idealistic outlook with yoga. You have a very personal, I can tell, relationship with yoga. And is it something that, I mean, tell me about your experience with Mati. I never met her. Um, and did you sort of already have this relationship with yoga before her and to, and how did you get into yoga to begin with because it just feels as though you really value and nurture the practice and i i don't know if mati was sort of an extension of that or did she bring that out of you or you know i know it's sort of a complicated two-part question no but. and it's a good question um and i think it's important for me to remember that i i have the opinions on all of this that i have because i um, speaking from a place of extreme privilege, I was a um, college athlete, lifelong athlete, you know, very serious distance runner, you know, competitive this, competitive that, kind of kind of top level elite athlete with a serious, um, you know, endorphin addiction. Mm-hmm. My interest in yoga was very physical and very acrobatic, uh, and was very lucky. And and oh well, so you know, Brock, okay. great friend of mine now. No, I stumble and I'm like, ah, that, that doesn't look like yoga. I like that. Yeah, that's my thought is, oh, that, I don't like yoga, but I could get into that. I got close with Brock. My practice was, you know, strong and vinyasa based. Um, and through Brock, I got hooked up with Annie Carpenter, um, who's, uh, you know, she's in San Francisco now, but she was a staple in LA for so right. long. Founder of Smart Flow Yoga. Amazing. I mean, just as a, as a teacher, as a person. So very you, close with her. You found out about Annie's classes, like Brock introduced Brock, you. Yes, yeah, Brock okay. is um, a longtime student of Annie's. Okay. They're very close, um, and was kind of on a sabbatical of sorts. From I was a, in politics for nearly ten years, oh. um, political uh, based based out of DC, doing okay. politics and media and copywriting and ghostwriting and all sorts of stuff. Nothing having to do with yoga, but for personal reasons, moved back to LA from DC. And I was not really sure what was going to happen because it's kind of weird to go from D.C. to L.A. to work in the political space. So left some room, did a bunch of yoga, and just got very lucky And that I found a way towards some sort of older, more traditional teachers pretty quickly. And I started off with Annie Inter... Like my trainer, my teacher trainer is Annie Carpenter right. in the initial days. Created a close personal bond with her. Uh, and through her, found Mati, and Mati for me was, she is my biggest influence, certainly. In the past few years, I've studied um, quite a bit with Chuck, with her partner. Mati was insistent that I and all, she has so many students, um, that her students that were going to teach, that they prioritized being good over being popular. And this was in a lot of, you know, her legacy as having founded Yoga Works. And I was, had the, you know, the 
one of the joys of my life was the time I spent with her. It's just, it's, this is hard and a little raw now in, in following her passing, but I didn't know her in the days when Yoga Works was like a, a just a studio that she and Chuck, she didn't call it a studio. Again, words matter. It was a school. Hmm. You know, I should, maybe I should have been an anthropological linguist and, you know, <laughs> or something because I get, I do, I get really caught up on words because I think words shape our ideas. She never called Yoga Works a studio. It didn't become a studio until she sold it, until hmm. they sold it. And it, she didn't do that on purpose. She would just be anecdotally talking about, oh, I'd go to the, down to the school. And it was a school. It was a yoga school. And I didn't know her in those days. And that was when she did the Mysore room, the 4 p.m. Mysore room every day for 15 years. Uh, and they sold it. Good for them. Yeah. Yoga Works became something. And then I think it's been sold two or three times since and it's gone public and what, whatever. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. You can just follow it. Like, the, you know, the history of yoga works is is kind of like that's kind of where you could look at where things maybe went a little off. And it's not because yoga works has some incredible influence outside of L.A. It has a lot of influence in L.A. It doesn't have as much elsewhere. But it's kind of a story of like how, um, you know, corporate America got interested in something that we were all getting interested in. Mati would talk in her post yoga works years about the, she was insistent on be good, don't not don't be popular, be good, and maybe you'll be popular. Right, yeah. Because there are teachers that have a unique ability to connect with large groups of people, uh, but most don't. And he doesn't make the person that has more breadth of instruction any better than the teacher that has more depth of instruction. Uh, so the evaluation on who was or wasn't communicating this practice didn't have anything to do with their number of students. And her larger point was that like, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, you know? Right. And if you're going to choose to do this, like teach privately, people just, just teach for free, just teach, you know, just do it. And you'll, you'll get better. Yes, of course. But for God's sakes, don't teach if you're not practicing, you know, it didn't matter. I mean, that's the Patabi in her is like, it's, 99% practice, 1% theory. Um, I've had other teachers that it feels like the inverse. And you've got, I get a little bit, like I always say, I've got like a, a Nyengar brain and a Ashtanga heart. Like I'm kind of caught in two worlds because I can really geek out about the alignment and the this and the that. But I yeah. see that as like, that is my comfort zone. And I use that. That is an egoic experience for me. Knowledge is acquisition. And it makes me me, and it makes me different than you, and it makes me better than you, and I'm the keeper of the information, you know, like, rather than passing it through me. But the get on your damn mat, do your practice, I mean, that was the Ashtangi in her, that was the Patabi in her, and it was like, and I, I'm a little bouncing all over the place because it was, her, you know, her message in be good, don't worry about being popular, none of that mattered if you didn't have a relationship to your practice. And a serious one that was, you know, not going to waver because you were on vacation or injured or bored or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and doesn't mean asana, right? It doesn't mean don't rest. To find equanimity and ease. But, but also it's okay, right? Like that's the abhyasa vairagya. Do your practice radical acceptance. Like, like these are the two the two uh, wings on the bird, and if one flaps faster than the other, you will crash. These are 
deep and profound experiences that only you can really have in solitude on your mat. You can be guided, you can be educated, but no one can do your practice for you. You can't get that from being led through a choreographed sequence day after day after day. Everything Mati ever taught me, I want to get it out. You know, and sure, she taught me how to do a lot of cool shit too. Yeah. But like, that's not what I take away from, from my time with her in any way. Yeah. No. And I like doing cool shit too. I mean, I'm an Ashtangi. I like doing cool shit. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I think my cool shit, am I still me? I'm in my late 30s, but 30s still. And, you know, these the, the cool shit, to just because we're just going to keep consistent, call, consistently calling it that, like, it's, all, it's all on lease. It's all on loan. You can work your ass off to get yourself into some particular shape. You'll be far more interested in the shape until you get there. You'll be far less interested once you get there. And then once you've gotten there, you're going to lose it anyways. Yeah. Is everything has the quality of life and death. There's always a manifestation and degradation. And, and the manifestation isn't better than the degradation. Oh, my mother thinks I'm crazy. I'm sure she doesn't. You know, I wasn't steeped in this world. And I said something to her after Monty had passed. And there'd been kind of a series of deaths in, in my and my husband's life. And like, Paul Cabanese is my favorite Iyengar teacher. Mm-hmm. Huge. He's kind of become my medit. I go get my meditation like for the week from him, and I kind of practice whatever he does. And in Mati's passing, he we did a dedication. He was talking about her vipassana. In, in the past ten years, she'd gotten really into her vipassana practice, and which is this is it's all just a practice in learning how to die. Kind of full circle when you walk into a level two, three vinyasa flow class. Is anyone practicing dying? The Shavasana practice is not to sit down and think about dying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, that would be anxiety-inducing. Now it's useful if you can then say, oh, my God, that's the experience of anxiety. I feel a little warm. My heart's beating a little faster. It just is what it is. You, know, you don't need to attach yourself to it. But you can lay down in Shavasana and, like, theoretically... You're not thinking about dying. You're practicing it. I mean, I was curious if I would, if there would be a place where I would ask this about you. And I'm watching a television show, Euphoria, right now on HBO. You know, the first episode was just it felt like pornography and it's sort have you seen the show oh yeah and so i've been really intrigued by this show euphoria and i'm not a parent but i wrote i recorded a couple podcasts about the show and now i'm glad i stuck with it and i can't help but think the show to me represents a world now where we literally do live two lives there's your real life there's your social media life. And I think, you know, I'm older, you're older. So I feel as though we have an, a little bit more awareness about it. But I do believe these kids under the age of 18 and 20, I mean, you are emotionally impacted by what you see on 
Instagram and you will think about it all day. You could think about it for weeks. And who knows the intention behind somebody's post, if it's actually coming from a confident place, if it's coming from an insecure place. And I feel the show represents this duality of people living two lives. I'm curious, as a parent, with technology and this struggle that we all have with it, I mean, and I, I, don't, I don't know if, we don't have to talk about the show per se, I, I don't know if that show is representing what's really happening or if it's just sort of a glamorized version, but how aware are you as a parent about the influence the phone has? And I'm sure you are. And I've had Nicole on the show. And, and it's not about like not letting them use it ever. But, you know, what what are you thinking or how are you juggling all of that? The show is a good place to start. Okay. Because that show is terrifying. It is, right? <laughs> I'm sure as a parent it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Uh, it's fiction, obviously. Um, but it's terrifying on a number of levels. I had several conversations with my husband just about the show on a number of levels. It's dramatized clearly, but it, you do have this. I have a, a two-year-old, soon to be three-year-old, and a, a four-month-old, soon to be five-month-old. So the show is is actually irrelevant in terms of knowing how to <laughs> protect my children from what comes uh, for them in fifteen years. But the shows larger point that we have gone off the rails when it comes to how we are raising Generation Z. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's poignant. It's also an example that you could pluck from any generation, uh, and you could sort of fear monger the generation, you know, too above it, because we all want to be cool parents, and we all want to be okay with, you know, it's a give and take. We've decided that when I was that age, I, you know, I snuck out a little, I smoked a little pot, I drank this and that, but I was like a good student. And, you know, I love when people say that I did that and I'm okay. And you're always like, well, like none of us are really that okay. (laughs) Like we don't, it's a strange thing to think that like we, we've all dodged a bullet and we're all like, well, I, I don't know. I feel like we're all kind of still really in it. So it's another thing then to have to figure out where you draw the line with a generation that's not yours, where the rules are different, the experiences are different, and the tipping point between good kid and kid that needs some course correction is in a totally different place. You could be the parent that puts your kid in a bubble. My, my husband would love to be the bubble parent. Okay. There's no qualms about it. He was sort of <laughs> raised that way too. So he's like, that's fine. I was in a bubble and I turned out okay. And like, you know, it's yeah. not it's not okay to be in a bubble either. Take the, no phones, no TVs. But I don't think that's my path because it's not authentic. Again, there's that word again. To me, because I'm not off the grid. Right. So I think if I were to try to be concise, it just seems to me that the best defense is a good offense. What I want my children to have is I want my children to have an intrinsic relationship with being alone. I want them to have intrinsic joy from being productive. I want them to have a relationship with the world, with nature, with their bodies, with their food, with their friends, with their family, with places in the world, with cultures in the world. I want them to 
not need reassurance externally. I mean, this is all sort of the manifestation of our generation's self-esteem movement, right? It all came out of the self-esteem movement. I mean, do you remember when we were little? Everything that, that we were the certificate generation, and like yeah. I went through a, a, a box of books that my made in kindergarten, and the book's title was "The Wonderful World of Me, Myself, and I." That was actually the assignment. I mean, this was the kind of thing that the idea, and it was well-meaning. The idea in child development when we were young was self-esteem, and it being now steeped in the world of what we've learned from that and child development philosophies are a little more have progressed since then. It's kind of back to being a family model, a community model. That's encouraging. And I feel like what I'm seeing is really now, again, I come from a place of privilege on this, but my child's Tony preschool with a bunch of kids that also, you know, are benefiting from parents that fought tooth and nail to get them into this really special preschool. So it's not really a good slice of life, but there is a lot more influence and um, emphasis on being part of a whole and it not being about the individual kid, which I think is really encouraging. Yeah. Uh, and when I talk about going on offense and not just being on defense, like I've had to reflect on small things. Uh, I stopped reading books on my Kindle and I started going back to the library and getting hardback books, not for all of the reasons like, oh, I like the tactile feel, but because I realized that my daughter had never seen me read a book. Hmm. She doesn't know the difference between my phone and my Kindle. How am I modeling to her putting a screen down and reading a book if I'm reading on a Kindle? We can say whatever we want to say to our children. It becomes a platitude. You have to model the behavior that you want them to see. The flip side of that is I've been very anti-screen with her, not wanting to let her watch television. And it dawned on me that because I never, toddlers are tough, right? Because I never did what I needed to do to put her over here, I was never modeling that I wanted to be alone. So now we use a little bit of screen time because she loves it, it's crack. But that's how she then sees, like, oh, mommy actually likes to go sit by herself and read a book. Like that's something, oh, she's choosing to do that. Yeah. And before I you know, gave a little bit on the screen time with her for all of the reasons, you know, because I'm afraid of euphoria, <laughs> Uh, Dora's not quite euphoria, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I realized that I had to actually kind of like, you know, walk the talk. I, you know, I need her to have a relationship with her physical body and the, the sensory experience of knowing how to calm yourself down and understanding the experience, the visceral experience of emotions. Uh, with a, a girlfriend of mine and another yoga teacher, Nicole Sherman, uh, we're writing a, a breath book for children. So I'm kind of thinking about ways that I can be like, Rather than being a total Luddite and removing technology from her existence, which is frankly foolish because I can't predict what technology will be in her life, the foundation of her having a genuine intrinsic desire to, to, to be who she is alone, happy, without external influence, it, it will combat that. If she's joyful without needing the approval of other people, at this age, that'll carry her through. I mean, that's what I see the problem is. I see people have too, they don't have intrinsic joy. The experience of joy is not intrinsic to them. But if you're relying on external accreditation for everything you do, then you're only going to choose to do things that other people can see. 
my mind is being blown. And I'll <laughs> tell you why. Because I think you just captured the essence of our culture. And that's why I think I'm so fearful of the Instagram effect and social media effect. Because you, however you just said it so beautifully and gracefully, it was like, we live in a culture now where people are doing things not for themselves, but for the likes, which will then make them think that it must be the right thing to be doing. But is it really inherently, naturally what they should be doing? And they get slight serotonin boost. Yeah. You know, second high is never as good as your first, right? Like what we're describing is an addiction. Totally. <laughs> like, you know, you could, this language could be applied to addictive behavior. You, you need the boost. You need the hit. It just doesn't last long and it actually doesn't nourish you. We don't quite have the defenses that I hope my daughter's generation will. There was no way to predict the fact that we would all just become like, to varying degrees, nefarious or benign narcissists, but that's just what we all turned into. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, you, you could just, you didn't trace it back culturally to about 30 years ago. And narcissistic behavior is encouraged. Becoming a mother, especially the second time around, has been, you know, it's, it's a normal part of a postpartum experience to have identity crisis because you're, you know, you are changed on a cellular level. Your place in the world really changes. You're just trying to figure out like who you are and how you fit in. In all my life, it never dawned on me that I wouldn't be like a ball busting career woman. I mean, I worked in politics for 10 years. Like, I mean, I think everyone that knew me in, you know, my formative years would have thought I would be like a lawyer or some, you know, something because I just, I'm a little Type A, you know, lots of work ethic and you know, this stuff kind of, you know, has fed my yoga practice, certainly. But as a consequence of like motherhood and having babies and health stuff and the way that the yoga industry just like really right around the time when I became a teacher really, really started shifting. The major shift towards the social media yoga um, landscape was kind of in my first couple of years of teaching. And if I had been a little better at it. I'm just not actually that, like my personality isn't that, it doesn't actually go that well with it. I'm I'm a little afraid of putting myself out there to be honest. But if I had gotten a little bit better at that, I, I would have a much more, again, here the audio air quotes, successful teaching career. In the absence of any sort of marketing value added, you don't offer the studios what they need because they just need to keep their doors open. In order to keep their doors open, they need their teachers to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And that's the model now. I mean, the model is put people through these teacher trainings, convince them that that's, check it off the list, I'm a yoga teacher now. Right. But that's the money, the, the, especially the community studios, they need that to keep their doors open. And then they need their staff to do their marketing for them. Because yoga studios are now little businesses. They're not, they're not schools anymore. I'm sort of in this weird place where I had a couple of kids and like, you know, I've been teaching for a while and I have a... I'll continue to teach. I'm my when I come back to teaching, it'll be a, a different. It'll look a little different. I took a hard left, and everyone else jumped on the highway. Well, it's funny because I I wanted to talk about that really quickly. I remember seeing you in class, and I remember 
were subbing and then you were teaching and then you got like full-time gigs at some studios, maybe in Brentwood or... Oh, I've taught all over town. I've been at like every studio. But there was this place where I felt like it just sort of exploded in, like you were then like really on the map teaching pretty regularly at some of the big studios, quote unquote big studios. Um, I'm not paying attention to me saying the word studio. Um, I'm not. That's what they are. I'm not, yeah, that's what they are. They're studios. I'm not regretful of that yeah. at all. It's just interesting. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that now. And it was sort of around the time where social media was exploding. And then I think right around that time, you may have had your yeah. first or your second was it your first. first child. Yeah. So. Gosh, I, I don't really totally know the question, but how is your approach to teaching going to be different from it because you did as you say you took a hard left and like almost sort of a sabbatical from teaching so i'm and you're probably a completely different woman than you were yeah six I mean, years to ago. my point right and i yeah. feel i feel i feel fortunate on one hand that the timing lined up and i didn't get a little too wrapped up in that world i want to be careful not to take credit for that because i think circumstances in my life sort of prevented me from going all in. Right. And I think that there was a time when um, I have a competitive streak. Did and you actually think that maybe that's what you should have been doing? Well, I think at that time, it wasn't as thought out. You know, I don't know that it was strategic the way that it is now. Totally. So I don't know that we knew what we were getting ourselves on the hook for. But I certainly wouldn't have turned down a larger platform and a large, larger audience. I wouldn't have turned down an Aloe sponsorship. I wouldn't have turned those things down and... I was at a place where had I not had a child and I had, it would have, it would have flourished in the way that people are now that you're, they're seeing dividends on that type of a career. Again, from a place of privilege, I don't rely on my teaching salary to eat. Right. I don't rely on my teaching salary to define me because I, you know, I, I do have two small children and I have mixed emotions about being with my kids all day. I'm not. I'm a lot more of a full-time mom than I ever thought that I would be. I just want to be careful that I'm not sitting here and, and criticizing something that I think, if I'm being honest, I wouldn't have turned down had had my life, you know, gone in a different direction. That being said, I'm not shy, but I'm very private. I couldn't have done it. Yeah. It's not my dharma. Let's just put it that way. But teaching... As I don't want, as much as I don't want to teach, but I, but I'm go, but it's dharmic. I can't not teach this second baby. Go around. I'm like maybe this is the time for me to go back into something totally new. Uh, you know, I'm writing a, a, a children's book. Like there's, if I'm open to it, which I'm not always, but I'm trying to work to be open to just whatever comes. But at the end of the day, I just, just twice today, I had, you know, like you said, things happen at the right time. I, you know, had a couple of people in my life come to me with opportunities for me to redirect my teaching in, in something that makes a lot more sense for me now. And I can't fight that that feels dharmic to me that I need to be teaching. But my classes were not vinyasa classes, right? <laughs> like not by a long shot. And I had amazing dedicated students that are chomping at the bit for me to come back. And I know that I made significant impact on people's lives but it was a depth game, not a breadth game. I was getting in deep regularly with with students that had practices. And I took that responsibility seriously. And then I was doing my best to take the students that didn't have practices and try to offer them an alternative 
to an environment that if you're not a natural athlete, it's intimidating to walk into, you know, what most yoga classes would be. It's not safe if you have injury, you know, it's all those sorts of things. And it's just, people need alternatives. There's like a million different ways to get to the nucleus of this. Stuff that was really common 20, 30 years ago. You'd go to a yoga class and it was very common to stop the class and have a demo. I I wasn't Mm. there, obviously. You didn't show up and expect to get the experience you paid for. You showed up and you were open to the experience that was being offered. And it wasn't uncommon to stop the class and have a demonstration and not a scorpion demonstration. Like, you know, hey, this is how you precisely put the block here on your knee in when you're using the wall in Second Warrior. And then let's all go to the wall. You know, it wasn't uncommon to because people didn't show up with an expectation of what they were going to get out of their yoga experience for the day. So my classes were really old school in that way. And I really loved it, but it's like swimming upstream. So I'm kind of thinking of, of going the Ashtanga route and seeing if, you know, the teaching Mysore for a while might be something that, um, cause that's my practice now. So I'm just going to share it. I know you don't post a lot on Instagram, but I saw something you posted a couple months ago, and after I read it, I was just blown away and floored by it, and I had to reach out. Whether ultimately you came on the show or not, it didn't matter because I wanted to just tell you how awesome I thought that post was, and it really resonated with me. Can I read what you wrote? Sure. I'm not going to be able to obviously show the visuals, but there's these photos. Explain what the photos are. I mean, they're yoga postures, but... Uh, in my final day of, of practice in the Mysore room, uh, I practiced... In both of my pregnancies, I was on bed rest for the, my first trimesters and then was uh, you know, fortunate in second and third trimesters both time to feel great. Um, and in my second pregnancy, I got... I maintained my Ashtanga practice, slow, steady, you know, it was, but consistently enough to the point that the day that I had my son, I was in the Mysore room, <laughs> um, and I knew it was a scheduled cesarean, so I knew, um, doing all of primary and half of second series, including, you know, my dropbacks and this and that, mm-hmm. and my uh, Jody, um, who was working with me at the time, she, 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 you know, she knows that I'm not one for taking a ton of pictures of myself because, you know, you can always tell the people that got their phone out all the time in the room, but she, she said, you're going to want these, these su- this, that's their souvenirs. So she, with her own phone, I, you know, cause she knew it wasn't like I set my phone up. I just did my old practice and she took pretty much the whole, you know, she's around the room doing my room. She just documented my practice, my whole last practice. I'm nine, I was 38 weeks pregnant plus, so over nine months pregnant. And she just documented my whole practice and sent me the photos. If you're not familiar with the Mysore style practice, it's a, it's a quiet room. It's, it's, you know, two to four hours where it's facilitated by a teacher with adjustments and, and one-on-one, but there's, there's no lead class. You kind of get to know these people in this really intimate way where you might know these people very well, but you don't know each other's names. You know, it's not social in that sense, but you know, they've seen me every day throughout this pregnancy. I walk out of the room that day and, and everyone stopped their practice and gave me some applause. It was very sweet, very personal experience. And she shared these pictures with me. Um, and I sat on posting them for at a couple of, 
months because I didn't, I really didn't know. I really didn't know if it was the right thing to do to put what I was doing at nine and a half months pregnant out into the world uh, without covering my ass. Well, I think you did a great job of covering your ass and, and also in being in quote unquote inspirational and, and just it made me think. And um, it's beautiful. And I'll just, I'll read it very quickly. August was born six weeks ago today. These photos and videos were taken the day before. Jody Blumstein thought wisely that I would like a few souvenirs of my prenatal Ashtanga journey. So she captured bits of my final practice in her Mysore room. She was right. I stopped posting yoga pictures a few years ago because it didn't feel authentic to my practice relationship to teaching of the practice of yoga. I am similarly conflicted. I always have a hard time saying that word. Mm. I am similarly conflicted about sharing pictures of myself doing advanced asana at nine months pregnant. My physical practice is very intimate to me. I miss it like others would miss a loved one away on a long trip. I was not practicing during my recovery. Over the past few weeks, I've looked at these images to reconnect. They are a bit raw and unfiltered. The alignment and execution are imperfect, but I love them. Not because they display my ability, because they display the consistency, compassion, and concentration that allowed me to have such ability at nine months pregnant. I've had health, pregnancy, and other complications for the better part of five years. This practice has seen me through all of it. It makes me the mother, wife, and teacher I am. I'm happy but hesitant to share these images with the world. The practice of yoga isn't ultimately physical. This is not meant to inspire or shame. This isn't a CYA. What does that stand for? Cover cover your ass. Cover your ass. This isn't appropriate (laughs) for most pregnant women, but it was for me. The best part is that after my second cesarean again, I got to revisit a simpler expression of these shapes and fell in love all over again. I just, I don't know. It's just, it was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And how was it to hear me read that? And, and how, how, did you, how did you get to the place where you felt okay with posting it? Because clearly you struggle with this whole notion of social media like I do. How, how were you okay to just let it go? I was okay with posting that. It was, Chuck Miller uh, always says, he says, yoga cannot heal you. But you can use yoga to heal yourself. Yoga cannot hurt you. But you can hurt yourself doing yoga. Social media, you can apply that to anything, Mm. right? A social media post is without quality. It is what is brought to it and what is taken away from it. So it is not as though you can't put something out in the world that it has value that can heal you and heal others. It's the personal quality that makes something useful or not useful. And this is true of yoga too. The poses themselves are just technology. The breath work is technology. It's how we use it. And it's in that relationship to how we use our yoga practice or use our social media practice. It's in the relationship that we have the opportunity to observe our nature, and our tendencies, and work to cultivate the opposite. And that is the larger project of the practice. It doesn't need to happen 
on a yoga mat. It can happen in a social media space too. So I had no qualms putting that post out there because it was pure. And my practice while I was pregnant was pure. My practice has not always been pure. Uh, you know, it's actually harder to keep it pure now that I'm back feeling great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, forever have maintained the depth of the experience of working through health issues, pregnancy issues, because it's not a hobby, it's a discipline. And if you show up and you can't move your body, you can still move your breath. You can still hold your practice. And it's more valuable when it doesn't come easily. Freedom through discipline. They're not just freedom because the music is fun. Yeah. And it's, this is not something that can be expected of someone who, you know, works a nine to five and they show up and they need to move their body and they need exercise because they do. And that's a good thing. My hesitation in putting it out there was number one, I wanted to make sure my child was healthy before I was... Oh, sure. Showing pictures of me doing things that literally you can't, audio medium can't see the pictures, but most people thought that this was insane. It was not. It was perfectly healthy and safe for me, but, you know, I certainly didn't show it to my doctor. Right. <laughs> you know, this is not the kind of conversation you want to have. They, she, she does, she's not an authority on the subject. That's the depth of my practice. I I can know. And I hesitate to put it out there for two reasons. Number one, again, a point of privilege, I felt good. And most pregnant people feel like crap. So I don't want to shame a bunch of pregnant women who feel like they can't put their head down because yeah. they'll puke. And they would love more than anything to work hard and maintain a sense of themselves in a physical space, but just can't. And their practice has to look fairly sedentary. And I don't want to brag about the fact that I had a pregnancy that allowed me to do that stuff. You know, and then, you know, beyond that, I don't really want to encourage someone to go do that stuff because not a lot of people that should. I feel pure in, in my post, if that's the, the, the root of your question. Um, and I don't post very often because I think that being in the limbo place where you you might not have gotten to a fully realized state, but you're out of the condition where you don't notice your shit. Yeah. And when you're stuck, where most of us with a practice are stuck in a, in the, the word self-conscious has a meaning that um, is not my meaning in this particular scenario, but having self-consciousness, it can be a little heavy because you're not just going to post any old thing you didn't think about the motivation behind that the consequences of that the need to do it the experience of what happens once you put it out there and then your relationship to what you're getting back um johan hari have you read johan hari either of his two books um his first is chasing the scream great book less relevant it's about the the history of the drug war second book came out last year i think called Lost Connections. And it is a study in depression, essentially. It's his own experience. It's depressive. But the um, it gets dives a lot into like 
SSRIs and a treatment of, of clinical depression. He kind of falls on a, a bit of a negative side of that. I, I don't, that's not what I'm supporting. I'm not going to go on Marianne Williamson on that issue, but he talks about why pe- so many more people are depressed. Hmm. And his thesis is, is these lost connections to people, to nature, to ourselves. You would really, I think, find the book super fascinating um, because you're, you know, sort of your entree into this closing segment kind of that's that was this hypothesis. Like, that's what he was out there trying to figure out. Like, why? There's a great book from the 90s called Bowl, Bowling Alone. <laughs> I'm going to have to get yeah. this. <laughs> um, Bowling Alone is like the yeah. kind of the seminal text on on this subject. It's from the 90s. Okay. So this is predates social media. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, there's a bit of this in probably every generation where you're like, ah, we're fucking going crazy, yeah. we're off the rails. There's also, you know, every moment in, in time we think our, if you're not politically aligned to your president, you think he's the worst president we've ever had. But this time it's definitely different, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this time I think it's different when it comes to how our, our, our spiritual psychological crisis. Um, and you're solving it. So the good. Yeah. This podcast. So. People are going to listen to it in two times because they're, you know, going to consume, consume, consume. Right. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, I know time is of the essence. I really, Meredith, I really appreciate you taking the time. Mm-hmm. Meredith Libros. Meredith Fogg Libros. Meredith Fogg Libros. Yeah, I, I kept my last name in the middle there. <laughs> Gotta keep it somewhere. And Should have just kept it. Right. And it's fair. To, I mean, I'll record an intro before this, but um, just in closing, you will be teaching very yeah, soon t- at TBD. Yoga Works. Or you're not TBD. sure. Okay, you just don't TBD. know yet. I'm, TBD. I just very, very recently decided that I will go back to teaching. I was not sure. Um, and how that's going to look, I'm not sure. I, okay. I'm not sure. I. No need for promotion here because I don't have anything specific. Yeah, to I was promote. just curious. But though. for my students out there that have been emailing, I'm gonna teach again. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking. I really appreciate it too. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Eddie.